let's uh, let's begin. Okay, well, we're here almost at the end of the retreat. And so I'm going to try and pull a few threads together this evening in the talk and pick up on some of the themes I've already started to outline in previous talks over this week. And the two issues I really want to touch on this evening are, one is why bother to wake up? Yeah, can't be bothered. <laughs> and the other issue is if we are bothered at all um, to wake up, what is there that can support us in this awakening process? And technically these are actually called seven factors or seven limbs of awakening. Now, it's a tall order to try and cover all seven, so I'm not going to even bother to try this evening. I'll give you the names of some of them, but I'm going to pick out some of those I feel that are really important for us to identify um, in this waking up process um, that I think it'll be important for you to take away with you uh, when you go back into your ordinary lives. I hesitate to use, as I say, the real world. I mean, this is just as real as any other world. Uh, what's going on in here, and sometimes that seems the fantasy world out there uh, rather than in here. So why bother to wake up? It's a question, isn't it? I think we've only got to look, and I'm going to, kind of, as I say, I'm going to kind of draw, draw on some of the themes I've already talked about over the uh, week, and I'm going right back to the first, first evening, the first talk I gave when I said that you know, most of us come here usually wanting something to be different in our lives. Um, we want some, something perhaps that isn't present or we have an inkling of something that's not quite right here. We might even just have the question, shouldn't there be something more to life than just what I'm experiencing at you know, this moment in time? which is often full of chores and full of, you know, drudgery, um, work and responsibilities and these things, and perhaps life should be something more than that. So I think we come often with questions. Um, and the Buddha has a kind of response to, again, something Jenny outlined in her first talk, the very first evening that we had a Dharma talk, in talking about dukkha. I'm talking this untranslatable word, this word that covers everything along a spectrum from minor irritation to tragedy in one's life. Yeah. That there is somehow recognition, even in these questions that we have, that there is dukkha playing a part in our life. I think for those fortunate enough not to have it, perhaps they would never come to a place like this. They would never come to meditation in general, and they would never search for anything else. Um, in my little schema that I finished off with you on you know, the previous talk, uh, you might call these the godlike realm, the people that don't think they've got a problem. Yeah, you're up in the gods. Yeah, you haven't got a problem. All's right in my world. I've got everything I need. Everything's fine. But of course, there is something messy called death, yeah, which might come upon you. Um, but let's push that out of the picture. So there are some people who don't feel that, but if you have that sense, then perhaps it brings you to doing something like we've been engaged in in this week. 
starting to engage in an inquiry, and that's what it is, starting to engage in an inquiry. And you're going to see from when I talk a little bit about these seven supports, these seven limbs of awakening, that actually inquiry and investigation is an enormously important part of this path. It certainly isn't about, you know, believe something. And we've said this a number of times. Both of us have said this in slightly different ways. It's not about believing something. So there's something about the quality of our experience that uh, perhaps is giving rise to this dukkha. In fact, the Buddha actually says, I only teach one thing. Sometimes he says, I teach two, but it amounts to the same thing. He says, I teach dukkha and its overcoming. With the implication, if you want to know about something else, go and ask somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. If you really want to know about something else, go and ask them. Um, there's all, particularly in ancient India, there's all kinds of experts on other stuff. Um, he's saying, go and see them. I think there's a serious part about it behind this. Is, and the serious part about it is, it's summed up in a nice little simile that's used in a, in a sutta, in one of these discourses called the Malankya Putta Sutta, um, where the Buddha describes somebody who is hit by an arrow. You know, arrows again, you know, a prevalent metaphor in ancient India. He's hit by an arrow, falls to the ground, and people rush up to him to help him and then say to him, shall we get the doctor? And the man says, before, before you get the doctor, can you tell me the name of the man who fired it? Can you tell me what family he came from, what caste he is, what village he came from, what are the name of his sisters? Um, what's the arrow made of? What's the head of it? What's the shaft? Is, is the shaft bamboo or is it um, elm? Or what is the shaft made of? And what are the feathers that are there? And there's a whole list of other things like this that this man asks. And the Buddha says rather wryly, he said, the man who asks these questions will simply die. <laughs> I think the real kind of nub of that, if you actually listen to it, is don't ask stupid questions. <laughs> now, <laughs> what I mean by that is don't, the Buddha is really trying to indicate, don't ask questions which are irrelevant to what is actually happen happening to you. So if you are, if you like, in an acute state of dukkha of some form, don't ask questions which are basically what we could define as metaphysical questions. Questions that take us beyond the bounds of what is actually happening to us at the moment that have very little bearing on what's actually going on for us. You know, if I'm lying there with an arrow stuck, stuck in me, it really does not profit me, does it, to ask all of these questions, to look outside um, for origins and sources and you know, just those irrelevant questions that we can keep on asking. So the Buddha is getting us to focus in on the problem. You know, hence the reason why I'm such a depressive. I keep talking to you about all these sad things like dukkha and you know, the psychological conditions which sustain it. <clears throat> but one of the things that we do know is that that feeling of being in dukkha is often circular. It's often repeating patterns. We repeat patterns of behavior. You know, these become deep, deep habit patterns that we are engaged in. And sometimes, actually, surprisingly enough, and it seems very odd, we get attached to our pain. Yeah? We get attached to the pain. 
It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I'm in pain, therefore I am. I know who I am because I'm the being that's experiencing this. And people get stuck in the circularity of being recycled, backwards and forwards, round and round and round. There's a technical name for this in Buddhist thought, which is actually what I was implying when I talked about that wheel, the final thing I mentioned in the previous talk, the wheel of becoming, the bhava chakra. This wheel of becoming is known as samsara, which can, on one reading of it, literally mean to go round in circles. Does that feel familiar? Does that have any connection with your experience, that feeling sometimes that we're going round in circles? Making the same mistakes that we perhaps made many years ago and repeating them. Again, the origins of this can be simply the confusion. But what we end up is with deeply ingrained habit patterns, patterns which we almost feel compelled to repeat because we don't know how to do anything otherwise. So there's a psychological desire to keep on repeating. As I say, we often repeat in our addictive processes, we repeat the, you know, kind of the drugs, the alcohol, the addiction, whatever it is, almost in that sheer disbelief, as I said the other night, in the sheer disbelief that it's not working. It does not make me happier. Perhaps I'll have another go at it. The next time it will. Yeah. It often doesn't, does it? Yeah. And so we get caught into this cycle it's this cycle of entrapment. And I think this is one of the feelings, perhaps, that characterizes much of the dukkha that people experience, is a feeling of entrapment and lost, lostness. Yeah. I feel entrapped by the familiar, by the known, even the same problems keep coming back. And somehow lost as well, as if you know, that sends us off in that search as in the last talk, that search for our real self, because I'm somehow lost in this entrapped area. And so we see this manifestation of stuff that keeps on repeating and repeating and repeating. And this gives rise to reactivity. Patterns of repetition giving rise to patterns of reactivity to various things. And we see this, and I want to give you two examples, two quotes. Actually, again, not Buddhist, because I like to draw on other things, as you've probably realized by now, other than just Buddhist material. And the first one I want to draw on you, which might amuse you. Some of you might know this already. Others who don't, it might be uh, quite interesting for you. And this is a little poem by somebody called Billy Collins. And it's called, Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. And it goes like this. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and I put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. (laughs) 
the endless coda that established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> now, you can see another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. <laughs> you know, I dread to think what might happen to him or the dog. <laughs> but you can see in that example, again, how we react to the sound. Now, I want to take a more serious version of this, just again to give us an impression of what often the feelings of entrapment that we can have. And this is, this is from a, another poetic source, but it's actually a poetic novel uh, by Rainer Maria Rilke um, called The Notebooks of Malta Lawrence Brigger. And this is just an extract from it of, of a young man who's living in Paris. He comes of Danish origin. He's living in Paris and he's uh, living in an apartment, feeling very isolated from his background. He says, I'm lying in my bed five flights up, and my day, which nothing interrupts, is like a clock face without hands. As something that has been lost for a long time reappears one morning in its old place, safe and sound, almost newer than when it vanished, just as if someone had been taking care of it, so here and there on my blanket, lost feelings out of my childhood lie and are like new. All the lost fears are here again. The fear that a small woolen thread sticking out of the hem of my blanket may be hard, hard and sharp as a steel needle. The fear that this little button on my nightshirt might be bigger than my head, bigger and heavier. The fear that the breadcrumb which has just dropped off my bed may turn into glass and shatter when it hits the floor. And the sickening worry that when it does, everything will be broken forever. The fear that the ragged edge of a letter which was torn open may be something forbidden, which no one ought to see, something indescribably precious, for which no place in the room is safe enough. The fear that if I fell asleep I might swallow the piece of coal lying in front of the stove. The fear that some number may begin to grow in my brain until there is no more room for it inside me. The fear that I might be lying on granite, on grey granite. The fear that I might start screaming and that people will come running to my door and finally force it open. The fear that I might betray myself and tell everything I dread, and the fear that I might not be able to say anything because everything is unsayable. And the other fears, the fears, the fears. I prayed to rediscover my childhood, and it has come back to me, and I feel that it is just as difficult as it used to be, and that growing older has served absolutely no purpose at all. I think that gives you just a little indication, a little less humorous than the previous example of entrapment. Being entrapped by the same stuff that keeps coming on back to us again and again and again. Those fears, those worries, those anxieties which we recycle again and again and again. And I don't want to labour that point, but this is very important because that leads us to that feeling of hopelessness, to inertia, to paralysis often in our life, of not being able to do something. And so when we say, well, why bother to wake up? Just this, and I could you know, spend the rest of the evening just talking about the conditions that in a sense are the conditions that we need to deal with or perhaps motivate and instigate our wanting to wake up in the first place. But just this on its own, just this sense of entrapment, of paralysis, of being trapped by stuff that keeps coming back, even from childhood, from upbringing, from conditioning, from all of the factors that play in on us, that, that perhaps this is something we want to cease. 
This is perhaps something that we want to stop. Something that we want to break by in some way waking up. So the process is one of awakening. As you've heard me say on many nights, the process is one which in this tradition moves towards nirvana. You heard me say again something about that the other night, that this nirvana is a nirvana-ing, it's a verb. I gave you a little taste of what it meant. It was the going out of the greed, the aversion, and the confusion underlying that experience that drives the circularity. Why do we run around in circles? Why do we run around in circles? We don't do it because we like it, do we? You know, in fact, that's the very opposite. You know, we don't like it. You know, like the poor guy, Malta, in this extract that I've just read, he's not enjoying it. You know? But why do we do it? We're trying to rediscover something, often trying to rediscover who we are, what we are, where we come from, all these kind of questions. And we perpetuate often the very things that we're trying to shed in that. You know, to use a technical term, we reify them. We make them more solid than they actually are. We solidify that self which fails to free ourselves from this stuff. Yeah. We make that into almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I am the sort of person that fails when I try to do this. Yeah. I was uh, just sharing with Jenny actually earlier on today that I'd been reading a poet, um, a Portuguese poet called Fernando Pessoa. Some of you might have heard of him. I mean, Pessoa apparently in Portuguese means something like um, like no one. This was his name, yeah. Mr. No One. And he wrote under about 20 different aliases. And he said that each of these aliases expressed a different part of him. They had a life. They were separate. There was nothing central to him. Only occasionally did he write in his own name. Only very, very occasionally in his own name. And perhaps when we look inside ourselves, actually if we're realistic, that's sometimes what we are. Multiple Multiple selves, not one self, not one fixed thing. Yet we kind of fix ourselves in the story that we tell ourselves. And this is what we're waking up from. We're waking up from this delusion. We're waking up from this confusion. The confusion of the centrality of a self which can't change. If we really want to defeat ourselves, if we really want to defeat ourselves, just say, this is how I am. Ever done that? Ever said that to somebody? So particularly when somebody challenges you. Um, somebody, some, sometimes people challenge you, don't they? And I'm not talking about serious things. Just the minor little habits. Little habits that we have, you know. And somebody said, do you know you've got that irritating little habit? And you go, that's the way I am. <laughs> yeah. What that means is, basically, I can't possibly change. This is me. This is the way I am. Now, I'm not talking about serious stuff, but just notice in that. And if it ever has happened to you, you will notice even in these tiny little things, which are not serious at all, they're not major problems, just little, you know, little habits that we have. Notice how you feel yourself under threat, being challenged, as if there was somehow a self that was fixed, that was being challenged, because that, that little habit, that 
somebody else finds irritating is somehow essentially you. Yeah. Essentially you. And so when we have this question of why should I wake up, perhaps it's also to wake up to a more spacious sense of who we are. A greater spaciousness. I probably said it the other night, but if I didn't, I'll say it tonight, which is, isn't there somehow something claustrophobic about being this fixed, immovable self that says, I can't possibly change? But on the other hand says, I want to find my real self. Yeah. Now how on earth are you going to find your real self if you can't even change the one you've got? <laughs> you know, so how is that going to happen? And so these are the kind of things we're waking up to. We're waking up to the habits which are bound. You know, I spoke about those habits on the first evening talk I gave. And they're bound to the subject of the second evening talk, literally to the subject. The subject who we think we are. Yeah. You know, it's not that somehow we exist separately. We, we, we think we are that subject, that deeply ingrained subject. And this is what we're waking up to. We're waking up to the fictitions of some of these things. We're waking up to the seemingly... I don't know, almost predestined suffering that we can create for ourselves. So the sense of that centrality of a self that can't change. Notice how just in those few words, and there are many, many other factors, I mean, this is just a tiny, tiny aspect of Buddhist psychology. Notice even in just in those few terms, the habits which I am, which are tied to the sense of a self which can't change, I'm gradually painting myself into a corner. Yeah. I'm gradually, gradually painting myself into a corner. And of course, these are all held in place by narratives, by stories that we keep telling ourselves. Yeah. Isn't that deeply sad? I mean, isn't this part of the deep pathos of the human condition? Of the human condition. And I think this is what the Buddha said. This is, you know, that that very thing for compassion that the Buddha spoke about, you know, that, that Jenny was speaking about, that the Buddha actually said, look. When I look outside, I see this enormous pathos to this condition that we call the human condition. And it's so sad, you know, it's so sad, it's so poignant what is going on, when actually the Buddha is saying it doesn't need to go on in this way. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to feel this entrapment. We don't have to feel this isolation so much of the time. And the isolation leads to almost a monomania of wanting to be the subject who is always in control. And that means controlling others, which wrecks relationships. Yeah? It wrecks any, any possibility of a relationship. I mean, I'm touching on material I touched on the other night. I mean, I saw a, a cartoon. I've said this many times again in this room. But I saw a cartoon many years ago, which I think was a wonderful cartoon, which talked about this kind of sense of no relationship. And it was lots and lots of different squares. I think I think it was I think it was in it was in some American magazine, one of the famous American magazines. But it had a sense of squares, and there's a man with a woman. They're obviously having a dinner because there was a candle, and there was a bottle of wine, and there was dinner plates, and everything sitting. And 
He's leaning across the table talking to her and she's in the chair and above in each of the bubbles above his head and it goes on for about eight or nine squares like this, he goes, me, 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 me. <laughs> yeah. And then it gets to obviously where he's finished. He leans back, she leans across the table and the bubble appears above her head and she goes, me. And he goes, <laughs> that's what being a self is <laughs> actually locked in to ourselves actually deeply isolated that again I've been trying to touch you with a little bit of humor here but that's that deep isolation isn't it that often comes of being so literally this is what we use in English isn't it self-centered self-centered yeah Selfish. Yeah. So these are the problems. This is this is the reason why this the Buddha is speaking about awakening. This is the reason why he's not looking at the great metaphysical problems of the universe and trying to solve them and say where you know the origin of the universe is and whether we're immortal or whether there's a soul that goes on and all of these things, because actually there's something deeply, deeply prescient, something deeply pressing that we have to deal with, which is our own pain. And in dealing with our own pain, we can often deal with the pain of others, and that brings us out of ourselves, doesn't it? It gets us into this notion of relating. The meta-practice we've been engaging in is a way of actually getting us outside of ourselves. It's a little experiment, as you know. It doesn't work for everybody at this stage. But it's that intention to move the mind in a direction that just doesn't go inside, looking deeply at our own neuroses, looking deeply and we become attached by them and we try to sort them out and we get into it and we get stuck in it. It's like sinking into quicksand. You can't pull yourself out, get out of it. Yeah. Actually, what you need is an other to pull you out. Yeah. What we need are others to help us to pull us out of ourselves as well as to pull them out of their selves. That's called relationship. And it's a relationship that's based on something else, which I spoke a lot about on that first night. Change. Change. Yeah, impermanence. What a fantasy it is that we have often, particularly in the Western world, of you know, two soulmates coming together forever who won't ever change. I, I'm tempted to say, dream on. <laughs> yeah, these two soulmates who come and have a snapshot of each other and they kind of checking the snapshot until one day the snapshot doesn't match the reality yeah, of how it was and how it is. Yeah. Again, it's leading, living fantasy, living a fantasy where, I hope this doesn't sound cynical, where actually there's very little connectedness. Now, I don't want to disparage all relationships, but you know, what I'm trying to indicate, of course, is that much of our experience with relationship is deeply self-related. So, why do we wake up? Why do we attempt to wake up? To decrease the dukkha, to escape the entrapment, to 
to deal with those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness that often come associated with those deeply ingrained habit patterns that we have. To call on resources within our own minds, which are the resources, which are the important ones that the Buddha identifies. And I only want to touch on just some of these. The human mind, from a Buddhist perspective, and I won't go into the details because, again, it would take me off into another whole thing, but the human mind, from a Buddhist perspective, is an amalgam of that which is neutral, just there for the operation of the human mind, there occasionally, and these are the important ones, those factors of mind which are wholesome and those factors of mind which are unwholesome. The unwholesome are generally referred to as being unskillful, unwholesome, yeah, akusala, yeah. Sometimes the wholesome factors are referred to as being kusala, yeah, or subana, which I actually like, which is beautiful. These are the beautiful factors of mind. And within those beautiful factors of mind, we see things like compassion. We see things like metta. We see ethical components. We see, above all, the first factor that supports the whole awakening process. <coughs> Mindfulness. Sati. This is what supports that awakening process. This ability to recompose, to recollect the human mind, to bring it back from its scatteredness and fragmentation, to bring it back into some sense of wholeness, to bring it out of a state or condition which I think is probably very familiar to you and probably has been familiar to you over this week. It's called papancha. It's a lovely word in Pali. It kind of, it's nice and it's sort of nice on the lips. <laughs> This word, try it out sometime. Papancha. Yeah. But this word indicates the, the, the ability of the human mind to spread out in all sorts of directions. It indicates also the monkey mind. Uh, but it has, and I just noted down some of the meanings that this word papancha can have, that it can take for us. And some of these might sound familiar from this week when your mind's gone off. This is complication, reification, proliferation, exaggeration, elaboration, distortion, and above all, obsession. Had any of that? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. These are the kinds of things that, uh, that we have. This is what's happening. It's, it's like jumping on a train when our minds start to go. Papancha is when we jump on that train of thought and actually, it's like passing through myriads of stations, station after station after station, and you still don't know the destination, where it's going to end up at. Again, does that have any connection with the feeling that you might have had when your thought processes were out of control? Papancha is a little like thought processes being running amok, running out of control. You just don't know where they're going to end up. You start off with a minor irritation and end up with a fully blown tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Just as 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 um, Mark Twain once said, you know, said, my my life has been full of mo the, the most terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. <laughs> yeah. That's what papancha does. 
it goes out, creates disaster scenarios, creates, you know, creates, um, creates stories, creates narratives that we live in. And so when we start talking about sati, when we start talking about mindfulness, we're talking about something fundamental to the human mind, a capacity of the human mind. And I always like to put in at this point, and I say this even to those students that I teach in, in mindfulness training in a more clinical setting, that, that mindfulness is not Buddhist. You know, it really doesn't matter where you come from, what religious tradition you come from, what creed you come from, you know, what background you come from. Mindfulness is a capacity of the human mind. It's a human quality, if it has any truth at all. You know, it's just that this tradition has centered, focused on it, and developed it, and spoken a lot about it as being so central to our sense of breaking out of this claustrophobic, um, tight net of habit that we live in, that awakening process. One other meaning of the word nirvana, which I was going to go on and say before I got slightly sidetracked here, one other meaning of this word nirvana is literally unbinding. It means to unbind, to unbind from habit patterns. Yeah? So keep on unbinding from habit patterns. And actually this was done on the observation, again, as I think I shared with you the other night, that, that fire is a major metaphor in Indian thought at this time, and he uses the fire metaphor again. And if you've ever stared into a log fire, when you look into a log fire, the, the sort of flames cling to the fire, yeah? They're clinging to it. Uh, but when, and this was, again, just a very basic observation, when the fuel, i.e. the log itself, is burnt out, the flame is somehow liberated and it goes out. It no longer clings. Once the clinging has ceased, once the fuel is used up, there is a kind of, if you like, liberation of the flame. It's no longer tied to its fuel. If you can see this as a metaphor for this awakening process, you know, what we're doing is not feeding those flames. Remember that? From, again, from one of the other talks. What we are engaged in by grasping and clinging is feeding that. We're feeding that whole area of greed, aversion and confusion by keep on doing the same stuff. We just keep on feeding it. As I said to you the other night, if you really want to keep your flames going, if you want to keep those things going, just cling and keep on craving. It will just happen automatically. Your fire will be blazing nicely. You can sit around warming yourself on my craving. <laughs> so, if you really want to be engaged in liberation, it's somehow about starving these conditions these, these psychological conditions of the fuel which keep them going. And one way is to engage in centering the mind, bringing it back, bringing it back from those acts of papancha, which actually, to be quite honest, sometimes aren't they just boring? As you see the same stuff coming around again and again and again? Doesn't it create a sense of humor in you? That, uh, and we do this by beginning to learn to stay present. Now, this is one dimension of it, to by simply becoming aware of what's going on, what the process is. And we can call this simple awareness. This is the most basic fundamental act of beginning to wake up, is to become simply aware of what is going on. 
As I said to you on the first night, you know, this is your mantra for the week. What is going on here? You know, what's actually happening in terms of my process? What's actually happening? And then dropping into the present, dropping into it with that mindfulness by touching the breath, touching the body, touching Vedana. These are all things which are happening this moment, in this moment. Um, this is so fundamental to what the Buddha is speaking about. The Zen tradition often, and I'm going to refer to this a little bit later as we get on, you know, often has little stories which in some sense pre- present something profound in the guise of something slightly humorous. And it does so in a particular story that, we, that uh, actually I recited recently in the States as well when I was teaching there. And it goes like this. There was a great old Zen master who's dying and um, his disciples have gathered around him and uh, they say to each other, well, what, what, what can we do for him? What can we give for him? You know, what, what did he like that he would perhaps like you know, in this process you know, that he's going through at the moment? And one of them said, yeah, there's a particular cake that he really, really liked. Uh, and I think we ought to go out and get it. So they send off one of the monks to go and get a cake and he comes back with a cake. And... Um, they come up to the bed, or one of them comes up to the bed and gives the, the old Zen master a piece of cake. And the Zen master eats a piece of cake and he chews it. And he says something very quietly to the person that's given him the cake. And he dies. And all the other disciples, you know, because they want to hear what his last words are. What is his last words? They say to the monk who had actually heard this. And they, what, what did he say? What was his last, what was his last teaching? What did he give us? He said it was beautiful cake. <laughs> That's what I call staying present. <laughs> yeah. So that you're present with whatever is happening. You know, as you can see, it's a slightly humorous story, but it's dressed up in this particular way to make a very profound point about staying present with what is going on. Even it could be in the dying process that one can be so present that you can even notice something like the taste of something and really be with it. Because that's actually not how we are, is it, in this process of papancha. You know, as I said to you, again, in one of the either instructions or the talks, we're out there ahead of ourselves, or we're behind, raking over the past. Sometimes we're just not there in the present. So simply becoming aware and dropping into the present every so often is really, really good. And you know, sometimes in the, in, the, in the text, in the early text, this is likened to a man who's sitting on a roof overlooking the terrain, seeing what's going on, seeing the lights and the shade and the shadows and the trees and everything, overlooking what's actually happening in, in front of what he can see. And sometimes it's described as a, you know, as a goat herder or a cow herder particularly, of you know, actually bringing back the cows when they're threatening to stray into a field where, for example, there is crops growing. You know, so he's actually actively bringing them back every time he sees the, the cows straying into that, into that field. So that's what we do when we bring our mind back, isn't it? We, we bring our cows back to our home. You know, we bring them back home um, to stop them in going into places which actually, you know, where they could do damage. They could do damage. In the Buddhist tradition... Uh, mindfulness, this very basic factor. Gosh, I'm looking at the time getting on. Um, I, I could just talk on, but I'm, I'm sure there's some point where you all go, oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
but in 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 Buddhist traditions, mindfulness is a highly nuanced thing. It's not one thing, and and many people think that they can solve the problem simply by um, just looking at experience, what's going on. And yes, some things will change as a result of that. Some things will drop out just by simply seeing them. Yeah. Yet that cold, hard stare. Um, looking at experience sometimes just gives us a greater view of the mess. That's all. Yeah. And we need to do things about it. And so the Buddha kind of doesn't speak about this so much as he usually often gives um, examples, similes of, of these other forms of mindfulness. You know, for example, that sometimes the mind needs to be protected. It doesn't need to go to places. Some places can be so raw and tender at this moment in, in our experience such as trauma, for example. If we suffer trauma, something deep, and it's, you know, I just see a bit like a cavity in a tooth. I keep poking it with my tongue just to see if it really is that painful. Yeah. And sometimes that's what we do, isn't it, with our minds. We go to the most wounded part of ourselves, and we keep going, oh, yeah, that really does hurt. Oh, yeah, it does hurt. Yeah, it really does hurt. And keep on doing this until we, you know, we actually don't actually usually wake up to the idea that it is painful. <laughs> And we no need to keep on doing this. This is kind of not useful stuff. And so there's a sense of what he calls a, what I would call a protective mindfulness there. A way of protecting the mind that we can do, of actually withdrawing when we see our minds going to that most painful area. Yeah? Just bringing it back gently. This is often likened to a gatekeeper on the city walls, actually it's usually spoken of a city with, with six gates in it. Each has a gatekeeper. And the job of the gatekeeper is to let in the friends of the city and to keep out the enemies. Yeah. And this is the simile that's used for this kind of protective awareness that we also need to have. Because if we just think we can solve every problem by just keep on looking at it and keep on probing it and keep on looking at it and keep on probing it, I think we won't get anywhere. You know, sometimes we just have to withdraw slightly until we're ready enough to be able to go to that. So when it's saying protective awareness, it's not saying I will never go there, it's saying I'll put this to one side, I know you're there and I'll come back to you at some point. Yeah. And there's a kind of other awareness which is also there within this sense of mindfulness that we have, which is much more introspective which is actually, if you like, somebody's got through the gate. It's got in. It's there niggling away in your mind. And it's a, it's a process of how do you remove that? How do you take it out? And this is likened, again, a simile. This is likened to a man, again, hit by an arrow. Yeah. The arrowhead is embedded in his flesh. And what the surgeon does is he uses a probe to probe the dimensions of the arrowhead to see how deeply it's embedded to find out how to remove this with the least possible damage, you know, with the sort of minimizing the damage as you extract the arrowhead out of him and the poison which is on it as well. Now, the poisons are what get into the mind, as is the arrowhead, you know, and the probe is sati. The probe is mindfulness, which probes the dimension of the problem, seeing how to minimize the destructiveness of actually removing it. So some things we just have to remove from our lives. Now there's another whole area, and I'll only just touch on this very briefly, uh, because you've been doing it, 
part of it is actually actually deliberately forming concepts. Deliberately forming concepts. One of the deliberately forming concepts that you've engaged in this week is metta. You deliberately form a concept and try to direct your mind towards it. Yeah? Concept of friendliness as being important to our minds and then trying to orientate our mind through the conceptions that we have within the phrases that we use to direct it towards something that we, in a sense, want to cultivate in our minds. Yeah? It's not taken as a given that you've got it already there. You've got it in a nascent form, but it needs nurturing, it needs that word that uh, Jenny used in relationship to this bhavana. It needs cultivating. It is not just going to flourish on its own. It needs deliberate watering, feeding, cultivating to bring it to fruition, to bring it to bloom. There is also the, the sense of sometimes deliberately reframing it, you know, of deliberately conceptually reframing some of our experience. I would go back to the Billy Collins poem, you know, rather than this man who's desperately trying to avoid the barking dog in the symphony. <laughs> you know, you could conceptually reframe it, this dog is lonely, it's frustrated. It's actually doing what dogs do, which is bark when they're lonely and frustrated and, in a way, suffering. So it leads to an actually reframing that whole situation whereby perhaps a more compassionate attitude can be brought to that. To reframe the banging on the wall next door and think, no, that person is not just trying to irritate me. <laughs> they might just be trying to put a picture on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Just simple things like this, and this is a kind of cognitive reframing that we do, and this is part of mindfulness as well. So just really, as this major support of what we're engaged in, I hope you see that mindfulness is such a vastly important factor. It's not the only factor, and I did stress that to you. It's not the only factor, because there are other supports of this awakening process as well. And I just want to pick out a couple of them. Investigation. You know, this is what you're being invited to do. This is your curiosity and interest that you bring to your own experience. Yeah. When you're being asked to investigate, this is not analytic intellectual investigation. Yeah. That is distance from your experience. This is, you're being invited, as we've invited you to do throughout the week, you know, over the course of this starting Wednesday, going through the weekend, this particular six days, six full days of meditation, we've invited you to actually investigate with curiosity your own experience. You know? You're not being asked to look at something abstract, you're not being asked to look at something philosophical, you're being asked to look at actually what is going on for you at this moment in time. Beginning to see perhaps a little bit, say, just of the impermanence of the mind the impermanence of our thought processes, the speed, the sense of entrapment, whatever is arising for you, to investigate Vedana, to investigate the body, you know, to know that not everything is up here, some of it is going on down here. You know, some, of the, some of the emotions that we feel as tension and pain and all of the things that we do experience can sometimes just be somatized. You know, we might not actually think anything in our minds, there might mean nothing, but there is that pain there. And this could be somatized emotion, so you're being asked to investigate that. To investigate the breath, to look at what's going on in that breath, 
that moment-to-moment sense of life that we have occurring in the present moment. And, of course, to be asked to investigate your mind. Yeah, this, is, this is the basic element of, of sati. So sati comes with this investigative process of being able to investigate what is actually happening for us at this moment. Not what might be happening for us, or what I'd like to happen for me, but what is actually happening. Down to this pain in the knee is happening now, this ache in the back, this disturbing thought that I'm having, this joy, I've painted a bleak picture so far, but this joy that I'm having is happening now. So we investigate this, we investigate what is going on. All of the factors, and I say I'm not going to cover all of them, I'm just picking out some particular ones which I think are of importance in this process of waking up, if we decide that that's where we want to go, that if we decide actually that there is actually a nicer, better way to live than slopping around in greed, aversion and delusion, agreed and and just running around in that confused state arising because of of the delusion, confusion. That we have, if we want to, then actually to do, to engage in this process requires something in Pali which is known as virya. Some of you will know this, it comes actually from um, another root, vir, which actually is linked not just to the translation I'm going to use, but to something else. It's usually translated as energy, but also indicates a quality of heroism, interestingly enough. Yeah. A heroism which confronts the difficult. Yeah. I think this is required in ordinary life. Most of us actually have courage that we don't know we have. Often when we're confronted with difficulties in our lives, we sometimes draw on resources that we didn't know we had. Life is difficult, isn't it? You know, I really would not want to underestimate that. And I don't think I'm being depressive in saying that. Life is difficult. As one particular phrase in one of the meditations that we can use in cultivating another quality of mind says, life is a play of joy and sorrow. Life is a play of joy and sorrow. It's not unequaled joy, and it's not usually unalloyed sorrow. It's usually a mixture of the two here. And to confront that mixture that we, which we call life, which actually is our lives. You know, and I'm sure even just sitting here this week, why did I say just sitting here? You know, as if it's somehow different from the rest of our lives. Sitting here this week, you will have gone through joy and sorrow. Yeah. What, I, what I'm amazed at, I usually say this on the last day, what, what I'm amazed at... Um, and I'm going to say it right now. What I'm amazed at is that you don't all run away. <laughs> you know, I would be just left with a hall of empty cushions, you know. <laughs> because um, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, the meditation master from Sri Lanka, Bhante Gunaratna, has a wonderful phrase about meditation, which I think shows us a little of the difficulty. He said, this is meditation. He says, sit down, close your eyes, and welcome to the madhouse. (laughs) You know, so we're confronting something which is very difficult, but that's no different from life, because actually, you know, playing with that a little bit, you know, life can appear to be a madhouse sometimes. 
with all the demands, all the stresses, all the strains, all the things we don't want to happen and all the things that we want to happen that don't happen and so on and so forth. You know, it's, it requires immense amount of courage, actually. And that's what astonishes me about you all, is the courage that you bring to sit and to walk and to engage in this difficult process. And so, actually, what we're doing in, again, using a support of awakening is drawing. We're beginning to draw on that courage that often we don't know we have to confront the difficult, to move in close to experience. Remember, this goes almost back to sati again, the ability to stand close to all experience, all experience, not just the bits I like, but the ability to stand close to it all the experience that's coming. Now that requires courage. Virya, I think, has that twofold meaning. Out of courage comes energy. Out of that courageous stance that we can take towards life, which is often there, that we can draw on. There is energy that we can put into the practice, and it's a balanced energy that's being spoken about. And, and energy is considered in some traditions to be a paramata, a perfection, yeah, or a parami which is another, which is the Pali version of it. You know, it's a, it's a perfection, something we can perfect. So it's not too much, you know, kind of, it's not overkill with energy, but it's also balanced. It's the right amount of energy that we need to progress with our investigations, to encourage the growth of mindfulness uh, within our daily attitudes. Because as you know, actually to be mindful, particularly in ordinary life, you know, I don't say it's easy here. In ordinary life, it's much more difficult to bring mindfulness things will require you to put some energy into remembering to do it. You know? and when we get caught up in that whirlpool of stuff that draws us into it, you know, as we go down the plug hole of life, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as we're going down it, you know, it needs some energy to get ourselves out of it again to get ourselves out and to realize that's what we're doing. We're just falling back into those habit patterns yet again. You know, and so it requires this heroic, energetic stance for us to take in life. And we can draw on this. This becomes one of the other supports. I'm only going to talk about two more because we really are running out of time here. One I think is very important. I kind of depressed you enough through the week, haven't I, in all the things I've said. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but there is another quality which is um, joy, piti. This is not a joyless path. You know, it really isn't a joyless path. It's not a joyless walking path. You know, as it uh, can often see when I see people walking. <laughs> yeah, just on my way to the scaffold. <laughs> it's not a joyless path. When I, when I actually did my training, um, particularly in this practice, because it's not part of the Tibetan tradition when I moved to Sri Lanka, um, what you used to see was the monks doing this with a big, beaming smile on their face when they do it. You know. So it's not a joyless thing that we do, on the, a walking path or walking the path. Yeah, let's make that emphasis, you know, walking, that walking path is no different from walking the path of life. 
in many ways. It's just a small example of it. It's just a little experiment done, you know, as we do it in this formalized way. So joy is something which can uplift us and can uphold us, and humor is part of that joyfulness. Now, it's often associated, this joy, with particularly meditative states, which, are, which I'm not going to talk about, which are basically states of absorption, of gathering the mind, and the mind literally brightens in those states where you get some absorption, where you have an ability to focus on an object more one-pointedly. Yeah, and you can take this to a very deep level of one-pointedness, one which is called akagata. Now, <clears throat> really in a way I'm not talking about that, although that's implied in this as well, the joy that we get out of the meditative process as well. But I think the joy we have to see as a much more general support as supporting our program. And actually it's the joy that often can arise just from the act of having done something engaged in this process, this difficult process. Actually, it's a kind of, I don't know if you've ever had that, you know, that sense of, I've done it. I've confronted some of my most difficult thoughts. I've confronted some of my most difficult, even physical stuff. And I've done it, I've seen it, and I've not been swamped by it, I haven't been overwhelmed by it, and there can be a joy to that. Certain traditions, as I say, I mean, particularly the Japanese Zen tradition, use humor, a, a joyful attitude to some of these teachings to try and make points about it that there isn't. You know, within this, this way of looking at things, we don't have to have this kind of morbid, brooding sense of approaching life. It actually is very joyful, and you find a lot of these stories tell you. Japanese haiku, some of you have heard me say these before, but some of the Japanese haiku are very good at making these points. You know, for example, there's a lovely Japanese haiku which says, My house burnt down last night. Now I have a clear view of the moon. <laughs> or another one, just to give you another example of this, which is, a beautiful red rose by the roadside. My horse ate it. <laughs> I'll give you only one more. I'll give you one more. <laughs> You've got me off on it now. <laughs> I'll just give one little more, which is actually a little, little Zen story. Again, a bit like the, the, about the dying master, but it's a Zen monk walking along the top of the cliffs with some other monks, and he slips over. He falls down the cliff, and it's just his, the belt that holds his robe together. He gets caught on it, and he's swinging backwards and forwards from a twig on the side of the cliff. And the monks peer anxiously over the top of it, and he goes, there's a beautiful flower down here. <laughs> <laughs> now, you can see, in a way, you know, there, there are serious things implied by those, aren't there? You know? There are serious things. They're, they're actually very good teaching aids. You know, the, the, particularly the two little haiku, they're about impermanence, aren't they? You know, they're about impermanence. And I can talk forever about seriously about impermanence and how everything's changing, probably as I did the other night. And you know, Our minds can go quite rigid at that thought, but somehow this lightens the mood, doesn't it? It lightens the mind when you hear these things. And so you can approach impermanence as not something fearful, but actually something that actually has a bit of joyfulness attached to it? Does that sound odd? Yeah? A bit of joyfulness attached to it? I just noticed 
something I didn't notice because something else has changed. Yeah. And so, you know, within this, we can, we can actually get this sense that humor, joy, is such an important part of what we're doing. I've said it to you before, being able to laugh sometimes at what, what is going on. Finally, and I'm only going to mention this very briefly, upeka, which is equanimity. Yeah. Equanimity is a quality. Equanimity is a form of engagement with life. It's, it's a funny word because in English we don't even use it that much, this term equanimity here, which really indicates a balance of the mind. You know, this, is both, this is both path and goal. This is what we're aiming at, the equanimous mind, the mind that isn't thrown off balance by those kind of slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you know, sort of Hamlet's stuff. You know, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are always happening. They're kind of buffeting us all the time, aren't they? The good things are happening and there's bad things are happening to us. And we can be thrown off balance because, you know, with the good things we're going towards them and the bad things we're trying to avoid them. So we're kind of a bit like a pinball in a pinball machine, just being thrown around by the things that, events that happen in life. And equanimity is almost like a ballet dancer walking through life, not being, you know, not losing poise not losing that gracefulness of moving through life, engaged with life, not sitting on its peripheries, not looking at it, not detached. I don't actually like that word, detached. It's, it smacks to me of a coldness, you know, of a not really engaged with things, where this equanimity that's being spoken about as a support and as a goal of the awakening process is something which supports us in our engagement with life in our ability to look at it and not being thrown off balance continually. So, when we come to engaging with the waking up process, we are not entirely toolless. We have tools, and those tools reside within us. It's drawing on our inner resources. We don't utilize them all at the same time. Yeah? Sometimes that joyfulness, that levity, will be needed to encourage you on your path. Sometimes that deep sense of mindfulness, of being able to come and drop down into the present, to know what to not go to at this moment in time is a quality of mind that we need. That energy is often, often required for that deep investigative process that we're going to engage in. But the feeling I really want to leave you with is of that sense of joy. You know, eventually, and I know it seems like hard work, in a way there is a coming to, to sit, a coming to the cushion, coming to something which is not a chore, but is actually something we can learn from, but is actually also light and joyful in the process that we investigate with. And what we discover perhaps leads us to this deep, deep valley of equanimity, you know, not the turbulent landscape of going round in circles that we can have. Good, I think I'll finish there. Yeah. On that note. So thank you for your attention once again. And uh, what time do we have? If we can ring the bell at quarter to, whoever the bell ringer is this evening, please. Um, and we'll have a, just a short break and then come back and sit for another 15 minutes just to finish the day. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.